0: Chapter six, which this whole book is an example of what not to be as a church. If the book, if the church at Corinthians had a Yelp, they would have a one star with a bunch of terrible reviews. When it came to holiness, righteousness, evangelism, uh, philosophies and all the rest, they were in the muck and the mire. Oh, and can we silence our cell phones, please, as well? This church was in the muck and the mire. They were really struggling in every single way. And some of the areas in which we've already looked at was one, they took in the world's philosophies, the Roman Greco world. And we're going to look at how perverse that society and culture was. And they began to just adopt man's philosophies. And what that began to do was cause dissension within the body. Because if someone is on the left, And if someone is on the right, they're not going to see eye to eye with things. And so in the church, we are to preach scripture, which is written by God's Holy Spirit to keep the unity within the body. When we stray outside of that, you're always going to have contention and divisions within the body. The second thing is human leadership. The pastors and the elders and those preachers were uh, causing the body to split apart. Now it wasn't the leadership's fault. It was the church's fault on how they viewed leaders. And we know that human leaders can be a source of division. We just had a president give a speech where it was incredibly divisive. Half the country are apparently no good. And then the president before him was also incredibly uh, divisive and separating the country. Human leaders can do that. And within the church, we are called not to have division. And then last week, we saw how within the walls, this discord was stirring up and it actually began to spill out into the streets. And so what were the Corinthians beginning to do from last week? They began to sue one another. They actually took their own brothers and sisters to the Gentile Roman courts of law and began to sue one, one another they took the authority of the Roman Empire and began to impose it upon their own brothers and sisters. Now, why is this bad? Because the San Bernardino superior courts do not have your best intentions. They don't care about you. They really don't even care about justice for a lot of uh, situations that go on. The church does. The church cares for you. And so God has called to keep family matters within the family because family matters. And so we're not to go out and to destroy one another's credit, blast people on social media, take them before judges and ruin their lives because somebody has wronged you. And so turn your Bibles to first Corinthians chapter six, and we're going to look at the Corinthians error. Now we've gone through one through eight last week, verses one through uh, eight. And that is really the, the heart of the matter. And then today's passage nine through 11 is Paul's conclusion. If we had an extra hour last week, we would have taken all of verses one through nine because they are a unit. So today we are going to do part two and finish what we started last week. Now, if you remember the church at Corinth had several major errors with how they viewed themselves and they lived their lives, which resulted in lawsuits. And if you remember from last week, verse one, we saw that they were ignorant to their own position, or they were ignorant of who they really were. And I have a slide up there so you guys can recall. They were ignorant of who they really were. And Paul divides all the human race into two groups of people, the saints and the aints. You are either God's people or you're not God's people. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no uh, playing both sides of the fence. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. Choose your side. And so God has called all people or created all people, but only some are called to be saints. And the Corinthian church was vastly in error to this truth. They didn't know who they really were positionally. They didn't believe that they were God's holy temple. They didn't believe that they were God's holy people. They didn't believe, chapter 1, that they were separated by God, called to be saints. Another translation for saints is holy ones. They were called holy ones out of an unholy world. Number two, they didn't know the authority they possessed. Paul goes on and he tells you and I and the church this incredible truth that you and I will rule, reign, and judge alongside Jesus Christ. Who are we judging? The unregenerate world and fallen angels. Isn't that mind-blowing? That's that little mind-blown emoji. Just, when you think about it. Now, Paul's argument is this. It's a Hebraic form of arguing called the greater to the lesser. And Paul uses it in Romans 5 to talk about God's love and forgiveness towards us. And this argument is, if God gave his only son for you, how much more will he not freely give you all things? And the idea is, if God gave you this much in his son, He gave you everything that was valuable to him. How much more will he not pay your bills? How much more will he not fix your marriage? Those are the baby things. Those are peanuts compared to what God has given. And Paul uses that argument. If you're going to judge the world and fallen angels, how much more are you supposed to be able to handle those civil matters in life? Those little baby frictions that we have within the body. If we're doing great things, we are to be able to handle smaller things. And the church at Corinth had no idea the authority that God has given the church here and in the future. Then number three, they did not have the correct attitude. They were ignorant of the attitude they were to possess as Christians. And so we'll get a running start in verse 7 through 8, and then really push into our text this morning because it's all one portion of Scripture. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 7, they were ignorant of the attitude they were to possess, which is that of forgiveness. Actually, verse 7, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Paul says, what is the correct attitude to have when somebody wrongs you? Stay wrong. Be defrauded. Don't be the person who goes and takes matters into their own hands. So if you notice in these verses, there's two options all of us have. We are guaranteed to be wronged by others, and all of us have two options that we could then exercise. We can say, I've been wronged, and I'm gonna give it to the Lord and forgive in my own heart, or we can take matters into our own hands, vengeance into our own hands, and seek our own retribution and justice. When you take option number two, it's indicative of one thing you have a proud heart because a haughty person feels they are entitled to something. When in reality, none of us are entitled to anything. Only somebody who is proud feels they are entitled to something. And so when I'm put myself on a pedestal and someone comes and knocks my pedestal down, I then feel it is my right and obligation to seek, revenge and justice. Get retribution for what has been wronged to me. I want justice and equity in the situation because I feel like I deserve it. When in reality, you don't. So it's better to be wronged and defrauded than to go around wronging and defrauding other people. So three reasons why we are to forgive one another. Number one, because Christ is our example. And I think I have that right up there for you because Christ is our example. When we talk about the term Christian, what do you, what does that mean specifically? Christ follower, Christ likeness, disciple of Christ. All of these are true and accurate. But when you really get down to the etymology or the 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 root of the word, it means a little Christ. You are a mini me of Jesus. That's what it means. So if we call ourselves and identify ourselves as mini mes of Jesus, then we are to do what? Walk like Jesus walked. So check out First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called, the word is, elected for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So what did Jesus do that we are to follow? Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and to live righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls." Peter says this, Jesus was reviled, and did he revile back? No way. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Remember the garden? Remember they a bunch of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders, they go and they seek to arrest Jesus, and then one of the servants comes up to the Lord And Peter, being Peter, impulsive Peter, whips out a sword. It's like taking his own concealed carry out. And he lops the guy's ear off. Malchus is his name. The ear falls to the ground and Jesus looks at him and says, for Pete's sakes, put away the sword. And then Jesus says this, do you not know that I can beseech or ask of my father and he will send 12 legions of angels down? Now, in the Old Testament, one angel killed 180,000 soldiers in one night. Imagine what 12 legions of angels could do. It is overkill. It's like a nuclear bomb trying to kill a, a rat. It's way over the top. But Jesus made this point. I have the power and I have the authority to take vengeance and justice into my own hands. Now, he was the only one that can do that. We cannot because we are constantly in sin. But he could, and yet he didn't. He was an example of meekness and forgiveness for us. That is power and authority that is restrained for the betterment of someone else. And that's why in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, the Lord says this, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Now put that in the context of our passage. What happens when Christ comes and judges the living and the dead here on earth? What are we doing? Judging, ruling, and reigning, inheriting the earth. What are these people who are gonna be under that authority have? They have the trait of restraining their power or self control Against those who even wrong them. Jesus went through three different courts. He went through the first Jewish court, then he went through the second Jewish court, and then he went through the Roman court before Pontius Pilate. He is then uh, committed to die, crucified on the cross. And what was our Lord's uh, uh saying on the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then his very last saying, what does he say? It is finished. Actually, before that, and good job. The second say, last saying is, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And then he gives up the ghost. What does he do? He doesn't take retribution. He doesn't take actions into his own hands. He forgives those who wrongs them and he gives the whole situation to whom? God the Father. Why are we to forgive? Because Christ is our example. And if we call ourselves little Christs, we need to do as he does. Now, here's the second thing, because God's judgment is the great equalizer. God's judgment is the great equalizer. Check out Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, Romans 12 and verse 14. And again, it's the same author from Corinthians, Paul, the apostle. And he writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now the Corinthians in chapter eight, Paul calls them out for being wise in their own eyes. And you can see because of pride, it caused each one to not love each other. That's why when we get to chapter 13. It's the great uh, chapter on love. And Paul says, if you can speak the tongues of angels and you don't have love, you are like a clanging cymbal. All you are is noise because the Corinthians had a whole lot of spiritual gifts and they had a whole little of love. And so they became proud and they became contentious with one another. And that's why Paul says, verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why do we let go and let God? Because God will judge the party who has wronged us. So going back to last week, there was an example of a a Christian employer and a Christian employee within the body of Christ. And we see this, and it happens. The employer hires the employee, and in our fictional illustration, the employer stiffs the employee. He goes to work, he puts in his 40 hours a week, and it's time for payday, and he doesn't get paid. And the guy who is wronged goes and does everything right. According to Matthew chapter 18, he goes to that person one-on-one, he takes two or three witnesses. He takes it before the elders of the church. He then They then take the whole matter before the church and without repentance, that guy is removed. And we talked about how that man or woman can do all the right things and still get the raw end of the deal still get the short end of the stick. They could have done everything right and the guy still never pays them. So when you give it to God, that person is entrusting that God will judge them. But what about their personal needs? What about them? Here's our promise about God and his justice and judgment towards his people. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. To sum up, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And you were elected for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing for the one who desires life to love and see good days. Now raise your hand, Christian if you desire a quantity and a quality of life that is filled with love and good days. If you do, God promises you, this is the recipe that you can obtain that. This is what we are to do. He must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So when somebody wrongs you, you do good for them, you seek peace, you pursue peace, and you do not seek your own justice. And here's God's promise to you. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. The word attend is like a waiter attends to someone at a table. What happens when you've been wronged and you do all the right things? God says, you pray to me, you cry out to me, you speak to me, and I will hear your prayers and I will meet your requests. And then he goes on and says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why are we to give it to God and forgive from our hearts? Because he'll meet the necessity. He will restore what the locusts have eaten. He will restore the ash that was came from the fire. He will make all things better. And then he will judge the person who has wronged you according to his will. So God will absolutely take care of it. Now, going back to our text, there's a third reason, and we're going to see that at the very, very end of the passage. And that is in verse 11. We are to forgive one another because God has forgiven you in Christ and we are then to be like him and that really ties this whole passage together so before we get to that let's cover verses 9 and 10 which is the fourth and final error that the Corinthian church was having when it came to this area of lawsuits the first was what they didn't know who they were number two They didn't know the authority that they possessed. Number three, they didn't know the attitude that they were to have as Christians. And here's number four. They didn't understand their relationship with the world. God has called us to be distinct and different. Why did God implement the law specifically like dietary laws to the Jewish people? Why couldn't they have pork on their fork? Why couldn't they have a cheeseburger? Why were they so, why was God so strict when he implemented the dietary laws and the, and the Mosaic law? He did not want his people to break bread with the foreigners, with the Gentiles. He didn't want them to be at their weddings. He didn't want them to be at their feasts. He didn't want them to be at their dinner tables. Why? Because then they would begin to intermingle. And so God says, no, I am going to give you very strict laws that are the exact opposite of how the foreign Gentile nations who reject me are living so that you can be a light to the Gentile nations. And when you get into the church, it's the exact same thing. Jesus says anybody can love those who love them. Even the Gentiles do that. It's very easy to love people who love you. But do you want to... Be outstanding. Do you want to be someone who is cut from a different cloth from the world? Love those, love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you and you will be like your father in heaven. You will be absolutely different from the world. And so the Corinthians, they were saved, came out of their former lives of sin and like a dog that returns to its vomit, went right back into the old ways of life. And they didn't recognize that they, their relationship with the world was to be evangelical and not succumb and be like everyone else. Look at Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians four, verse 17. So this I say, and affirm with the Lord So it's not only my opinion, but Jesus backs what I say that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. What do I always say? Where the mind goes, the body follows. Trash in, trash out. Garbage in, garbage out. If you're listening to music that is garbage, objectifying women, demeaning people, murdering people, cursing and foul language, garbage in, garbage out. If you're watching on the television screen or the big screen, pornography or, or murder and assassinations and rapes and, and drama and all this stuff, garbage in, garbage out. You are only as good as what you feed your mind. And the Gentile world is futile in their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The word to know in Greek is Gnostic. When you put an A in front of it, it's an alpha primitive, which flips the word or has an antonym to know. So what what is the word uh, Gnostic when you put an A in front of it? agnostic. And that's the word here, ignorance. Somebody who boasts, oh, I'm agnostic. They're boasting that they do not know a thing, that they are ignorant. The Latin word is imbecile. That's what it means. And that's the description of someone who does not know and believe in God. They are ignorant because of the hardness of their hearts and they have become callous And have given themselves over to sexuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. In Corinthians, it was called the old leaven you lay aside that old way of life which is corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. The Corinthians only got the first part of the memo which was living the old manner. They never got the new way of living. So what was their error? There were 10 things, 10 lifestyle patterns that were exhibited in the church at Corinth. I thought in my own head, I've dubbed them the terrible 10. And just like we have the 10 commandments written on two tablets of stone, Paul lays out the terrible 10 sins that was happening within the body that is representative of people who do not know God and are accursed and damned to hell. And they're broken up on two tablets or two different sections. The first five deal with sexual sins or sexual deviances from God's standard. The last five deal with social sins or sins that directly impact and hurt others around you. So let's look at the, the 10 sins that the church in Corinth came out of and then went right back in. And every one of these 10, you can find an example where Paul calls them out on this very thing. For example, fornicators and idolatry. Next week, Brian's going to finish out chapter 6. And he's going to show you how they were stuck in fornication, which means chasing of prostitutes, and idolatry, which was the worship that was happening there in Corinth. Then the next one is adultery. Where have we read about adultery in First Corinthians? Chapter 5. Remember? What was going on? There... There you go. There was a son who was so perverted, he took his father's wife and made her his own. That's adultery. Then we have effeminate. Chapter 11, Paul says, men are not to have long hair. And the idea was because there was a switch in roles going on within the church. They were trying to make the church egalitarian, completely across the board. And in chapter 11, Paul addresses that, and he talks about the order of creation. Christ the head, then the male, then the female, in that order. When you buck it, you're bucking God's establishment and command for creation. So the men were acting like women and the women were acting like men, and so on and so forth. And so everything on this list, the Corinthians were doing. Now look at this list and look at the, the end game of those who practice such things. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. What was happening in the church? They were being deceived. And they were practicing these things, which is not indicative of someone who is saved. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators. That's the Greek word pornos. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's the most broadest sweeping term for sexual immorality. If you want to kind of put borders on it and kind of define it a little little more, it's singles, men or women who are unmarried, who are having illicit heterosexual relations. So I'm not married as a young man and I have sex with a girl I met at the club, that's fornication. I'm a, a young girl and I, have, uh, I do other sexual acts with a, another young guy and I'm not married, that's fornication. It's heterosexual relationships with, that is outside the bonds of marriage. And the root word, classical Greek, it comes from a prostitute chaser. One who seeks out prostitutes and then lays with her, which is interesting. Why is that? Well, the very next term Paul uses is idolatry. And idolatry, why would idolatry be in this group of sexual sins? Because of what was going on in the Roman Greco world. If you look at all the occults throughout history, Satanists and all the kinds of occults and false religions, most of them will have some form of sexual practice tied to their worship. You go in the Old Testament with Moloch and Baal and all of these, they all had the high towers and the groves where there would be orgies and all the rest. In Rome, the empire, and in Greece, it was the exact same thing. 99 miles away from Corinth, there's a place called Thebes. In Thebes, they had a great building, a great temple to the god Bacchus. Bacchus is the god of wine and ecstasy. Now I know things, there's nothing new under the sun, and I know we don't battle with these things anymore. But Bacchus was the god of wine and ecstasy and also the god of pleasure. And so how you would worship Bacchus was you would get drunk You would get high on other substances, and then you would have drunken sexual orgies. There would be palaces or buildings or structures bigger than ours, and they would be filled with tens, hundreds, even thousands of people where they would switch sexual partners. It was one massive orgy. And we get our English word, debauchery, from that god, Bacchus. What does debauchery mean? What does debauchery mean? Strong sexual desires. It means a lifestyle that is absolutely perverted when it comes to sexual manners of life. That came from Bacchus because of how they worship. Now in Corinth, you had another big temple. It was actually one of the ancient wonders of the world given to the goddess Aphrodite. Now, when people, they say, oh, I, if you eat shellfish or you eat oysters, it's an aphrodisiac. What does that mean? It means it's a stimulant for sexual desire. That was taken from the goddess Aphrodite's, which stimulated sexual desire. So 1,000 temple prostitutes, both male and female, would come down every single day and begin to have sex with the people in the church. That's why next week when Paul or Brian preaches, Paul in spirit, when Brian preaches, it, Paul's gonna say, do you not know when you join yourself to a prostitute, you're taking Christ along for the ride? I preached that at a high school. I said, if you're sleeping with your girl or you're sleeping with your man, Jesus is right there. And if you're comfortable having a threesome with the Lord, then go about your business. But if you're not, repent. It was a hardcore message, but they got the point. If you join yourself to a prostitute, Christ is along for the ride. The Corinthians, they were still going on Sunday service and then on Sunday night, they were hitting the temple prostitutes. That is idolatry as you are worshiping that God with your own body. Then the next on the list is adultery. That is sexual interactions with someone that is not your spouse. And it doesn't even have to be a physical thing. I hear this from guys all the time. Uh, Looking isn't a problem. Looking's not sin. You hear that all the time. It absolutely is. Don't take my word for it. Jesus says, if you lust after another woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You are guilty as if you followed through. That's why the standard is so high for us as Christians. Our relationship to the world is to be what? Different, distinct from everyone else. Now here's our next one. What's the word? Effeminate. This is only found once in the New Testament. Only once and it's found here. In fact, it's only found once in all of the Bible. And the definition means soft and fancy. But I didn't really know what soft and fancy meant. I mean, I can impose what I thought it meant. But then I went and I began to look at extra biblical text or extra biblical text, specifically like classical Greek. How did the Grecians use this word that Paul uses in their text? What's the context or etymology of it? And it turns out that Plato in his synopsis would use this word frequently and effeminate means to exchange your sexual role for the other side. So if a man is effeminate, he's exchanging his manly traits for women, womanly traits. He's soft and he's fancy. If a woman does it, she's wearing the pants in the relationship, if you will, and she is acting out or trying to be a man. Effeminate means transgender, non-binary, gender fluid, or any other term you want to use. There's nothing new under the sun. From the very beginning, we've had drag queens. From the very beginning, we've had men called to be men who are soft and fancy, who exchange their bodies to be a woman. In fact, who was the Caesar that was ruling during the time of 1st Corinthians? Anybody know? Oh yeah, somebody says it, said it out there. Nero. Caesar Nero. Well, Caesar Nero was a homosexual. In fact, 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals or bisexual. Caesar, Nero, he was a homosexual and he actually took a young 14-year-old boy named Sporus. He had Sporus castrated or his balls taken off so that he could not produce testosterone and he can be effeminate or more ladylike. And then Nero took Sporus and made him his wife. And had, obviously, sexual relations. When Nero died, the very next Caesar took Sporus as his wife. That's the idea of effeminate. It's exchanging what God has called you to be at birth for something else. And it is absolutely, completely sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. This is going all the way back to the law before Israel had even entered into the promised land. 22.5 says this, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And in chapter 11 of Corinthians the Corinthians were doing exactly that. In verse 14, Paul says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, is it a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, God isn't necessarily going after men that have longer hair. He's going after men who have longer hair because they want to be like a woman. Like our Richard, he has longer hair, but he has a big burly uh, face and he's just a big burly guy and there's nothing that comes off as effeminate before, you know, the church at all. He's specifically referring to men who are bucking God's order and want to be feminine. And women who want to therefore be like a man. So they'll shave their heads. They'll be very butch like. God says, no way, Jose. Now he ends the book in chapter 16. And in verse 13, I'll read it to you. This is Paul's command. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. Here's the command. Men, act like men. Don't submit to to the world and the world's systems and the world's ways. Act like a man. You are called to rule. You are called to lead. It means to be head of state. This is God's ordination over you. Act like it. Don't submit to the culture. Don't allow your wife to run the home. That is sinful at the very core because it bucks God's order. You are called to be men and you are called to lead and you are called to be strong. When we have weak men, we have troubled times. When we have strong men, we have peaceful times. We are having troubled times in this world because men have taken off their pants for skirts and they've taken a back seat to this egalitarian way of thinking and it is absolutely wrong. Act like men. And lest we should be too aggressive and rule with an iron fist, verse 14 says, and let everything you do be done in love. And there's the counterbalance. It's we're not ruling like a bunch of jerks. We're not ruling like a bunch of egomaniacs. We're ruling because God has ordained us to, but we're doing all things in love, which brings that balance to society, to the church and to the home. When we exchange our manhood for anything else, all of society begins to fall apart. Look at the statistics of how important uh, the father is in the home. And you will realize when you don't have a manly man leading the house in the Lord, how destructive that will be. From suicide to a burden on society as those kids, 94% will end up in prison. Those are the statistics. It's absolutely overwhelming. So Paul says at the church in Corinth, stop acting like a bunch of sissies and act like men. Then the next word in which he he is uh, uh, really badgering the church at Corinth is homosexuality. And that rounds out the first five of the terrible ten in sexual sins. Now, people have gone long and hard to try to either remove this word from the Bible or redefine it in some way because they will not teach on it. The Methodist church, for example, have excluded this term from Scripture and they refuse to speak on 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. They will not preach from that because they do not want to pay the piper or face the music, if you will. They do not want to actually teach what the Bible says lest they actually offend the world around them. There's a a translation called the Queen James Bible. Which goes and makes everything egalitarian, makes men and women equal in every way, and then removes all of these forms of sexuality, like feminism and homosexuality and all the rest. That is not the way God has called it. There are seven times He uses this word "homosexuality" in the Bible. Six of them, six, deal with direct judgment on ba- before God. God judges homosexual uh, lifestyles and relationships. Now we're going to see in verse 11, he also forgives and redeems and makes right what the world has taken away. But it has to come through repentance and understanding that that lifestyle is wrong and wicked. Like I said, 14 out of the first 15 were homosexual emperors. And so that bled all the way throughout. Where did Rome pick that from? Greece. Greece was throughout the years known as the boy lovers. If you remember, if you've ever seen that movie 300, and the guys are coming and they're like, oh, the Grecians are trying to fight back the Persians. And Leonidas says, if the boy lovers can do that, we can do that as Spartans. And that's synonymous with the Greeks. They were soft effeminate, and they were sodomists. And at the root word of homosexuality, here in verse 9, is the word sodomy. Where do we first hear sodomy in the Bible? It is actually derived from Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot and his family were there. God was going to judge with fire and brimstone. God sends angels in disguise to pull them out, God's elect, out of that judgment. And what did the, the men in Sodom want to do with those visitors? They wanted to rape them, sodomize them, which means men-on-men penetration, sex. They wanted to take them and actually have their way and rape them. And what was the end result? brimstone, and fire. God judges that, but he also forgives it in the same light. So the first five are so are sexual sins. The first three deal with heterosexual relationships. The last two deal with homosexual relationships. Now we go to the last group of the terrible five uh, down there in verse 10. Nor thieves. The Greek word is kleptis. What do we get from our English? Kleptomaniac Kleptomaniac is someone who cannot control their fingers, right? They got sticky fingers. They're always looking on how they can come up and take stuff that is not yours. Thievery just means taking something that is not yours. Why is it wrong to, to be a thief? Because one, you're actually robbing from your brother. And that's what the Corinthians were doing when they were suing one another. They were wrong, so then they go to the courts to then take what may not actually be theirs. And number two, everything we got comes from whom? God. Deuteronomy 8 says, even the, the skills that you have and the contracts that you get and the ability to perform the task to make money, God has given you those things. So when you rob from someone else, you're actually robbing God's blessing from another person. And so it's actually much worse than when we act, what we actually think of. Then the next one, nor the covetous. And that's the Greek word for greedy. The Corinthians were a very greedy people. And so coveting is having or desiring something that is not yours, which is an error because everything we are we have, we are to give thanks. We are to be grateful. All that we have, we are to say, thank you, Lord. When I see someone else's wife, or someone else's home, or someone else's car, or someone else's figure, and I began to become covetous of it, what I'm saying is, God, what you've blessed me with is not enough. And in America, we see this all the time. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses. You know, they have a car, we got to get a better car. They have a great house, let's get a better house. It's always trying to one up, not being thankful for what God has given. The next on this terrible 10 is drunkards. This means being controlled by alcohol. You you hear sometimes the argument, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Yes, he did. And the Bible does not prohibit alcohol. The Bible prohibits being drunk. When they drank wine in the olden days, it was one medicinal. Paul writes to Timothy and says, I'm writing to you. I heard you have a poor stomach. Drink a little sour wine for that. One, it was medicinal. Two, it was watered down. The wine oftentimes was 10 to one water to wine. So you didn't have a Merlot of 18% alcohol that they're just pounding pitchers of. They had a, a half a pitcher, or a quarter, or a tenth of a pitcher, and then they fill the rest with water. They dilute it, and it was for the purpose of not dehydrating. Then you have strong drink, and that's what we know as the spirits. The three wise men: Jack, Jack Daniel, John, what is it? Johnny Walker and Jim Beam, right? God says this: The drunkard will not inherit the kingdom. You are to be controlled by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and not spirits. In uh Proverbs chapter 20 and verse one, this is the first reason why we are not to be drunkards as Christians. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Christians, are we to be wise or not? So if we're drunk, we make poor decisions. We begin to mock with our mouth and we begin to fight. We drive contention between brothers, sisters, families, brother or uh, brothers and sisters in the church, families at home, daughters, mothers, fathers, sons. We drive contention and a wedge. We begin to mock with our mouth and we begin to verbally be contentious and even violent. It's not wise. Number two, We are at war. How many of us actually believe when we wake up every day that we are at war against a a power, against a force that in and of ourselves we have no chance of winning? Now imagine you're a soldier in Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq or in Ukraine or whatever and you're behind enemy lines. Do you have the liberty of being drunk? And if you get drunk, what happens? Most likely your, your life will be ended. Look at what, um, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says. 1 Peter verse 5 or chapter 5 verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Why? Be on alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Satan would just love to destroy your testimony and to destroy your church and to destroy your family. And one way he uses is substance abuse. In this, it's alcohol. In first or Ephesians chapter five, And verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15. Where are we? There we are. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Proverbs 20 says, if you're intoxicated, you are unwise. We are called to be wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. The word debauchery. Why? Who is the God of wine and ecstasy? Bacchus. But filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. When you are filled with the Spirit, what comes out of your mouth? Praise, thankfulness, psalms, spiritual songs, you are uplifting. Proverbs 20 says, when you are drunk with wine or you're drunk with strong drink, you're a mocker, And you are someone who is contentious. That is not the way we are called to live. So going back to chapter six, we see the next one, number nine of the terrible ten are revilers. Revilers specifically are those who cause verbal abuse. That's literally the definition. And it's right off the back of drunkards. Just like homosexuality was right off the back of a feminism, just like idolatry was right off the back of fornication, right coming off their drunkenness, Paul calls out reviling, which is you are verbally abusive to other people, which is indicative of a heart that's not right with the Lord. When you're critical of other people, it's oftentimes because you're not right with God. And here's the truth. God will judge you by the same standard you judge other people to literally the exact same standard. So if you're ungracious and unloving towards people, God will judge you to that very same standard. A reviler is someone who is verbally abusive. And then the last one of the terrible 10 are swindlers. We know these as con men. They knock at your door and they say, hey, I got a a prince in Nigeria that needs your help. Send us some money, right? These are people who are just running con games. They're always trying to get a buck. People come into this church and they say, we're homeless, we're poor, we need your money. We'll serve, you know, one week, five weeks. We'll, We'll commit to your church if you can just help us. And I know in my mind, you are just out here to run a game. And sometimes we pray over it and we give them the money. And give them over to the Lord and let the Lord judge and God will replenish. And sometimes it's so blatant that they are con artists that we say, no way, way. Not going to happen. But in the church, there are con artists. You see it all the time, specifically in big congregations. Because a con artist sees a whole lot of people that they can social network with and potentially rob. And so the, uh, Paul says revilers and con artists will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means if you live your life in any of those ways and you do not repent, there's no change in lifestyle. You just continue down the merry way, not seeing any error in how you live your life. If you die in that state, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The church did not understand their relationship before the world. They were exactly the same. They muddied the waters, they blurred the lines, and they were not distinct at all. Now verse 11, and this draws us back to the whole passage and ties everything together. Why aren't we to sin and sue each other? Why aren't we to take retribution and matters into our own hands, but rather forgive because God has fully forgiven us. Therefore, we are to do likewise. And this is so powerful. Verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God, You mean to tell me transgender, gender fluid, homosexuals, drunkards, revilers, con artists, all of these people can be saved? Absolutely. And that's the fantastic news of the gospel. No matter how deep and dark a person gets, God can snatch them out the fire. Look at this crazy passage. I found it this week. And I was like, I've never read or heard anybody teach on it. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Now get this. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. What is a eunuch? Or who is a eunuch? one who has been castrated. They've had their balls removed, most likely and oftentimes because of effeminate and homosexuality and to join themselves with a male partner. God says, don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree, meaning because I've been snipped, I'm no longer worthy. Listen to what God says. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Here's a transgender, gender-fluid, non-binary person who when they repent and come to the Lord, God says, I will never cut you off from what, uh, from my inheritance I am going to give you. This friends is a complete and total forgiveness of sin. The church gets the bad rap of, we hate the homosexual pride community. That's not true. If we let them in their sin to the point where they die in it, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's more hateful to bless that lifestyle that we know ends in damnation. That is hate speech. That is unloving. And we know we have a God who can restore and forgive everything the locusts have eaten. Why would we not invite people to that saving grace? Now quickly, I want us to show three things in verse 11 when it comes to forgiveness. Number one, it says, you were washed. This is the process of regeneration, and I have it up there on the slide. What's regeneration? This is a singular work of God's spirit to draw the dead sinner unto life. In chapter 3 of John, it's called born again. So we've heard that term, born again. Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Those lusts and pleasures could be drunkenness, fornication, adultery, heterosexually, homosexually, effeminate, all the list we covered. Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are first in that process of salvation because God saved us and he sent his spirit to call us and quicken us to life. The Bible says you're dead in sin and trespass. So if you're dead, how can you possibly choose God? There has to be a resource outside of yourself. And that is this process in soteriology or the process of salvation called regeneration, where the Holy Spirit calls you and then washes you. He throws you in the the washer machine with some tide and begins to clean you right on up. Then the next step is justification. And that means just as if I have never sinned. And it is a courtroom term. Why is this important in the context of what we're speaking of? Because what were the Corinthians doing? Taking people to court and suing them. Now God takes us into his courtroom in justification and he slams the gavel down. And he says, not guilty. Not only are you not guilty, but all of your sin has been forgotten. Not only are you not guilty and you're forgiven, but everything you've done is forgotten. Have you ever heard someone says, well, I forgive them, but I'll never forget? That's foolish. That's not forgiveness. That's a coping strategy. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is this idea of justification where you judiciously say, I forgive and I absolutely forget all that you have done to me. When God looks at you, he does not see the sins you are in. He sees the perfection, which is in Christ. Then the last term is sanctification. And that means that process of becoming like Jesus. We're born again and we're newborn babes. And then we're now trying to mature until we become like Christ. The idea of verse 11 is this. God has forgiven your past. God has forgiven your present. God has forgiven your future. And he also then blesses you beyond measure. That's our example for forgiveness. When it comes to our brother who wrongs us, what do we do? We forgive. We forget. We bless those who curse us. We turn them over completely to the Lord in that whole situation, and we go about our very business. Why? Because God has done that in Christ Jesus. Does that all make sense? I know it was a a water hose. All right, let's pray. God, we, we are so grateful that you have called us and you have saved us. And Lord, we we know that we can so easily get our feet dirty as we walk in the world. It's so easy to get our toes dirty, Lord, when we're out there in the world systems. And yet you've called us to be clean, you've washed us, you've made us whole again, and you've called us to be holy, for you are holy. And so God, I pray if there are sins, vices within our body, that they just be repented of. They be confessed to one another. They be confessed to you. And then that step of repentance where you have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So God, it's on each one of us to be prepared to walk the walk of the Lord. And then to those who have been wronged, Father. I pray that we can turn it over to You. We can commit these events to Your Spirit, Lord, knowing that You will repay vengeance to those who have wronged us, and You are also attentive to our prayers. Lord, You've forgiven us. Seven times seven times 70 times 70, infinite times, Lord. And we are to forgive our brothers and sisters the same, not allowing the root of bitterness to seep in our hearts, but to forgive and to forget and to entrust them to you. We are called to be a blessing to the world. God, may we be a blessing to each other in Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church of Montana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Montana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.